you'll open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to describe two scenarios to you. One goes all the way back to, uh, to when I was at the age of 20. I went to Germany to be a youth minister in an English-speaking church that was made up primarily of military personnel, but also uh, local uh, German folks in the, in the community that could speak English. And some of the guys that were military personnel in the church, some single guys, asked me if I wanted to go with them to Paris. And so, absolutely, I wanted to go to Paris. And I said, what are we going to do? We'll see the Eiffel Tower. We'll go to the Louvre. And uh, we'll eat out. And we'll do all kinds of fun stuff. So we, we made our way to Paris. And the day that we went to the Louvre was really a remarkable day for me. If you've ever seen pictures of the Louvre, it's the most famous museum in the world. And the architecture is so magnificent. The grounds are just pristine. The whole setting is quite beautiful. And to know that in the Louvre was the Mona Lisa, maybe the most famous portrait in the history of the world. And so when you walk into the, into the Louvre, you walk in to a scene and to a, a setting that you realize is foreign to you, that you're a tourist. But this is the kind of place that you come to and you speak quietly and softly. You get, a, you get a guidebook and you go and you look and read about the various exhibits and the paintings and the portraits and the antiquities. And you realize that it's not a place where you live. It's a kind of a place that you're, that you're just passing through. Well, the other scenario is this. This week, my daughter, her husband, and their five grandchildren moved in with us for five months. Uh, we don't live in a, in, a, uh, in a museum, and you can tell it by the, by the onslaught of the children. Now, here's the way that this began to, began to unfold. Of course, it's fantastic. We love having them with us. It's going, to be a, a very, it's going to be a wonderful time. But Will comes in, and he flops down on the couch, and he puts his arms behind his head, and he said, Papa... How about, how about turning on family game night on that big TV there? And, and before you sit down, how about getting me some of those special cookies of yours that you hide in the back of the pantry? Uh, I like, give me a couple of them. Well, you know, that's quite a contrast between the way a tourist is in a museum and, and when someone feels at home. And that's exactly the way that we want uh, our family to feel, that when they come into our home, it's not a museum, it's a home. And when, you, when you're in a home, you talk and you laugh and you have fun and, and nothing is so, so priceless that it, that, it, that it can't be replaced. But you go into a museum, uh, that's where you go as a tourist. That's where you look, you ooh, you awe, you whisper, you read about the antiquities, but, but you leave them behind. You never touch them. In fact, you don't even get that close to them. You know, for a lot of church people, church is more like the experience of a tourist than it is being a part of a family. It's particularly true when you live on the edges of church life, when you don't engage it and you, and you don't feel like you're actually a part of it and primarily because you don't want to be a part of it. it you're just much more comfortable on the fringes. 
It's like when your family brings a guest into your home. They realize that's not their home. Uh, They put on their best behavior and and they enjoy being in the home, but they realize that's not where I live. This isn't my family. And and so they're a lot more reserved. They're a little distant, much like a, a tourist. And there are, there are such a thing, there is such a thing as a church tourist. Oh, you can be a member of a church and still be a tourist. You can be a member of an antiquity society and go to the Louvre, but you're still a, you're still a tourist. You basically prefer to stand on the edge looking in. But that's not what God wants the church to be. God wants the church to be a family. That's why, that's why God describes himself as our father. Jesus is God's son. He is our elder brother. And you see all kinds of family language used in the Bible. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. Peter, a spiritual father to, to John Mark. I want to talk with you this morning as we are thinking about this summer, what it means to be a member of the church, uh, to be the kind of member of a church that really honors and pleases God. The chapter that we've read this week for our study is, I will treasure church membership as a gift. But I want to add a subtitle to, the, to the, our study this morning. When your church becomes family. When, when the people you go to church with become like a part of your family, that is a gift. That's something special, something unique. It's something beautiful because it demonstrates the, the outworking of the gospel. To take aliens and strangers and by the grace of God and the work of Christ, he brings them together and makes them into a family. Follow along. I'm going to begin reading in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone, among, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we will not grow weary. So then, when... When Paul writes, so then, you know he's coming to the conclusion of his argument. He's getting ready to to bring the exclamation point and to accentuate the main thought of what he's been writing about in the previous verses. So then, 
It's like he would want us to underline this idea. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I want to talk about becoming a family. I want to talk about being a family to the point that we, that we treasure church membership as a gift. And that involves getting engaged in the lives of other people. Getting off the fringes of church life and jumping into church life. Being all in rather than just testing the waters and then withdrawing. I want you to notice that if you're going to be a part of a family, a church family, you've got to understand that's exactly what God wants. Notice how he begins. He uses the word brethren. That's a family word. You'll notice at the very end of the passage, the household of faith. That's a family image. You know, some translations translate the opening line, brothers and sisters, and that that catches the idea behind the word brethren. He's not just writing to the, to the men of the congregation. He's writing to the entire congregation. They would have understood that. He says, brothers and sisters. That's how Paul wants us to think of ourselves and our relationship with one another. We're a part of a household. We're a part of a family. So these are family instructions. And carrying out these instructions will help us become more of a family because these are the kinds of things families do. The first thing is this. Families are engaged in restoring those who have fallen. Families are engaged in restoring those who have fallen. Look with me in verse 1 again. If anyone is caught in any trespass, The idea of being caught in a trespass doesn't mean that that someone catches you suddenly. That is, you you walk into a place and you see someone engaging in a sinful act. That's not what he, excuse me, that's not what he means. He means the sin has caught them, captured them, like a hunter captures his prey. That a particular sin has overwhelmed a person. That a particular sin has debilitated a person spiritually. It's like it has a, a grip on them and it won't let go and they don't feel like they can get away from it. So if someone is caught in a trespass, been captured by the evil one, the thief who has come only to steal, kill, and destroy, the one is like, who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The one who is constantly watching and vigilant for an opening in a person's life so he can seize them and, and, and catch them. As I mentioned, a hunter does his prey. What are we to do? We're not to approach them in a condescending kind of way in a legalistic kind of way. Uh, We are to seek to restore them. We are to seek to help them be set free. And notice who's responsible for that. Those who are spiritual. 
what spiritual people do is help set free by the grace of God, the power of God, for the glory of God, those brothers and sisters who are caught by sin. The word spiritual is is an interesting word. Notice he uses the word a spirit of gentleness in just a moment. It, It communicates the idea of a person that is filled with the spirit. Just before the church at Galatia would have read chapter 6, they would have read the previous section. Look back in the previous section of chapter 5 with me. Look with me in verse 16. Notice the references to the word spirit. But I say, walk by the spirit. Look with me in verse 18. If you are led by the spirit. Look with me in verse 22. The fruit of the spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Spirit-filled believers are involved in a rescue mission. Not just the lost, but those who are saved that have been overwhelmed by sin and find themselves caught in a trespass. So how are we to restore them? Notice he says, in a spirit of gentleness, not in a condescending kind of way, not in a hypercritical kind of way. Now, it doesn't mean that we might not speak pointedly, directly, forthrightly to them about their sin, but we do it with gentleness. In fact, if you go back with me to the previous chapter, you'll notice that in the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22, he comes to the fruit which he calls gentleness in verse 23. So we deal with them gently, kindly, lovingly, forthrightly, directly, pointedly. And we do it, each one looking to yourself. What he means by that is, there's two things actually. One is we recognize, except by the grace of God, we could be where they are. And so that causes us to deal with them gently and compassionately. We could be where they are. And if we're not careful, we will go where they go. That is, sometimes the sins that people struggle with, if we're not careful, we will find ourselves falling into that same sin. And so you... You deal with them compassionately. Notice how he puts it at the end there. This goes with that second aspect. So that you too will not be tempted. So if they are dealing with a certain sin that you have a propensity towards, you've got to be particularly cautious as you help them that you don't get caught up in that very same sin. You can't do that from the fringes. You will never be an an integral part of a church family on the fringes, you've got to be willing to get dirty and get messy in people's lives. So you you seek to restore one another. Secondly, you bear one another's burdens. Look with me in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is Christ's command that we are to love one another. He gave that command to the disciples in the upper room. 
You can find the idea all the way back in the book of Leviticus that we are to love one another. But what Jesus did and what makes it the law of Christ is when he says, love one another as I have loved you. So when we help bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. We are doing for others what Christ has done for us. Now, what does he mean when he says bear one another's burdens? The word burden communicates the idea of a crushing weight. Think of a boulder. Think of a boulder crashing down on a person. Think of a person whose spouse suddenly dies or dies after a a long, prolonged sickness. Jay Lynn and I had lunch this week with a very dear friend, member of our congregation, who, whose wife is battling Alzheimer's, and, and um, they're just not able to be here very much. And as I thought about this passage, one way that I thought, you know, we could help bear his burden just a little bit is just by taking them out to lunch. So we, we got together, we had lunch together, wonderful time of, of fellowship That's a crushing weight. And when people live on the fringes, there's nobody to help them bear that weight. Fortunately, this couple didn't live on the fringes. They were at the very heart of our congregation. And if you live on the fringes, you don't even know that these kinds of things go on. And so there's there's no one to bear the burden if you live on the fringes. And there's no burden for you to bear if you live on the fringes. It's, it's standing with a person whose, whose financial world comes crashing down because of a downsize in their organization. And, and not the result of their own lackadaisical attitude or laziness at work. They are now unemployed. And the humiliation and the financial stress that, that it brings on a family. What a, what a wonderful gift it is to have others come, come around you and support you emotionally and physically. Men helping men bear burdens and ladies helping ladies bear burdens. And every time we do that, we're fulfilling the law of Christ It's like Jesus is saying from heaven, that's why I saved you. That's what it's all about. That makes me so pleased. You're glorifying me because you're fulfilling the law that I gave you. Love one another just as I have loved you. We're to bear one another's burdens. But go down with me to verse 5 because verse 5 is an awkward an awkward verse because it looks like it's the very opposite of what he's just said. In fact, it appears on the surface to be contradictory to verse 2. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, each one will bear his own load. So you may wonder, well, which is it? Well, it's both and. Notice the difference in the words. The word burden is a word that carries the idea of a crushing weight. Something so heavy, so debilitating emotionally and spiritually and and in many, many ways that you you can't 
You can't hold it up on your own. The death of a spouse or a child or a family member or a close friend. A terrible diagnosis from a physician. That's a burden God doesn't want you to bear alone. You say, well, I just cast all my cares upon him. But the way that God usually helps us bear our burdens normally is by sending people into our lives to help us carry the load. So what does verse 5 mean? Notice it's the word load and not burden. That word load can carry the idea of, at least in some secular writings, it's used to describe a Roman soldier's backpack. That's quite different than a, than a, debilitating, a debilitating, crushing weight. You know, there are certain things that we have to do on our own, certain responsibilities that we're to fulfill on our own. When, my, when I was raising my children, it was my responsibility to be their primary teacher, primary provider, primary disciplinarian. I shouldn't have expected the church or the congregation to be the primary provider, the primary discipliner, the primary teacher of my children. It's a, it's a load to carry, It's not a crushing weight, it's a glorious load, but it's a weighty load because God has entrusted those, he got entrusted my three children into my care and he said, train them, love them, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and it was primarily my responsibility with Jalen. You know, we live in a, in a society, particularly in, in Western culture, and you see, it, you see it in Greece, and you see it in the United States of America. People want to be given everything they need, and they don't really want to work for it anymore. Uh, there was a day in time in the greatest generation where you just didn't take handouts. You, you worked. You labored for what, for what you earned. But now people... You see the mentality in Greece, you see it in, in our country as well. It's, what can I get for as little exertion as possible? Well, that's the difference between a crushing burden and a load. A load is our responsibility, and we shouldn't be asking other people to do those things, those responsibilities that the Lord has placed on our back. But the point is... In either with either idea, bearing one another's burdens or carrying one another or carrying our own load, it's life lived in relationship. It's seeing membership as a gift. It's 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 knowing that that I'm a part of a church family. That there are people in that congregation I love, there are people in that congregation that love me, and there are people that are gonna help me with the crushing weight of life that I find myself under. He's going to expand on this idea in verses 6 through 10. Look with me in verse 6. It says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, there's two ideas there in verse 6. One is that it's the responsibility of the church leadership to teach the word, that our primary focus in teaching and proclamation is the Bible. 
that we're not primarily to teach about the Bible, we're to teach the Bible. And that's why typically we work through books of the Bible, because that's what we see as our God-given task and responsibility, teaching the Bible. Those who benefit from the teaching, those who benefit from the ministry, and we'll expand it even, even beyond teaching to the ministries of the church, are to share all good things with those who teach. That is, they're to be all in. They're to be all in when it comes to financial resources. They're to give sacrificially for, for the ministries of the church to be able not only to minister to them, but to be able to minister to others as well. But it's possible for a person to think, you know, I, I'm doing pretty well living on the fringes. I'm doing all right, not being all in. You know, I benefit from the singing. I just love the music at our church. I enjoy, I enjoy the, the teaching that goes on in worship and in the Bible fellowship groups. And, and I give very little to the church. I'm not engaged in people's lives. I don't serve in the preschool ministry, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the senior adult ministry in a, uh, in a BFG capacity. I, I, I'm doing just fine. But notice he says in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You see, when, when we don't live as a family, we're mocking and taunting God. You, you might think, well, I don't see it that way, but it doesn't matter how you see it, does it? And it doesn't matter how I see it. He says, to share all good things with the one who teaches him, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Verse 7 follows directly from verse 6. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The the law of sowing and reaping. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's the law of sowing and reaping. The law goes like this. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Think of it agriculturally for just a moment. If you plant an orange tree, you live in Florida and you plant an orange tree, don't expect you're going to get apples or lemon or lime or bananas or corn. You're going to get oranges. You you reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. Jalen's family... When we married, they lived in Titusville, Florida, and before they moved to New Smyrna Beach, they had an orange tree in their backyard, and there's, there's nothing I enjoyed more than when we would visit them to go out back and get oranges off that tree. And it would be just loaded down with oranges, and they were so sweet and juicy. It was just really uh, a pleasure to be able to go out and, and, to, and to pick them. And then Jalen would would peel them for me so I didn't have to get my hands too dirty. But nevertheless, I would go out and pick them. She would juice them and we would drink the juice. And, and uh, every year I'd go back and there'd be more of them. I'd pick them, take them in, we'd juice them, we'd eat them. Next time we come back, there'd be more of them. That is, you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow. Just try neglecting your children when they're young. And see what your relationship's like when they become teenagers. 
just try planting the wrong seed in your marriage. And see the coldness that develops in the years to come. The last part of the the law is you reap later than you sow. You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, you reap later than you sow. You you know, we're a microwave society. We're coming more and more that way. We want want instant, instant results. I make a commitment to Christ. I want everything set straight. I decide I'm going to read my Bible today. Tomorrow I read my Bible. I don't get anything out of it. I, I don't know if it's worth reading my Bible or not. But you're reading your Bible today for the way that it's going to change you in the future. You reap later than you sow. Somebody goes eight months without reading their Bible. They pick it up and they read it and say, I, I just find it, honestly, I just find it kind of boring. But what do you expect? After eight months of disregarding your Bible, you think you're going to open your Bible and it's going to jump to life? Have you ever read, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So you reap later than you sow. That is, the seeds you're planting today is the fruit that you're going to reap in the future. You've got to decide, what do I want my future to look like? And then you've got to start planting those seeds today. Well, what kind of seeds do we plant? Well, one seed we plant is by sacrificial giving there in verse 6. Another seed we plant is by doing good. Look with me in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good because the initial groundwork for, for farming can be quite arduous. My great-grandparents on both sides of my family lived on rural Kentucky farms. And I would often go with my brother and, and spend short periods of time there. And, and it was a hard life that they lived. You would got up early. You worked through the heat of the day, and then you ate dinner off the produce of the land. And so don't lose heart. You read your Bible today. You don't feel like you're getting anything out of it. Read your Bible tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And then you will begin in the near future, maybe sooner than you think, to begin to experience the fruit of it. The same is true in church life. You find it kind of awkward and, and, and unusual to go into a Bible fellowship group. You invite a couple of people over and, and they don't reciprocate and invite you back. So you lose heart, you give up. But instead of losing heart and giving up, you just invite somebody else over. And you decide, you know, the Son of Man, the Son of Man was rejected by men. Bring it on. I'll invite people over. I'll minister. But what you'll find is when you don't when you do it for the right reasons, eventually you'll find the right fruit. So he says again, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary, if we don't give up. So then, now here's the conclusion again. So then, while we have opportunity, while we have a breath to breathe, a heart that's beating, a life to live. 
Let us do good to all people, believer and unbeliever, and especially to the household of the faith, to those with whom we are in a covenant relationship here at Ninth and O Baptist Church. Well, let me give you some personal application. Let me give you three pieces of advice, three thoughts of personal application. The first one is this. You will always be a church tourist until you get involved in the lives of others in our fellowship. You will always be a church tourist until you get involved in the lives of others in our fellowship. A tourist never feels exactly comfortable. You might enjoy the pristine condition of a, of, a, of a museum, but you certainly don't want to live there. And the same is true in church life. Number two, getting involved in the lives of others can be messy. Getting involved in the lives of others can be messy because all of us are sinners. We all say things we shouldn't say. We all do things we shouldn't do. We all stumble in ways we shouldn't stumble, but we just do. But when you're committed to people, you're going to get engaged in their lives and it's going to get messy. I can imagine that maybe you've said to, to a child, maybe a wayward child at some point in their life, no matter how hard you run, no matter how far you go, I'm your mom or your dad, and we're not going to abandon you. Well, just like things get messy in a family, they get messy in church. And if you're going to be part of a church family, it's going to involve getting, getting dirty, so to speak, as you help minister to others. So getting involved in the lives of others can be messy. Number three, the choices you make today, you will reap in abundance in the future. The choices you make today, you will reap in abundance in the future. Now that, that's a spiritual principle that's true in virtually every aspect of our spiritual lives, but, but never more true than in church life. And so in just a moment, Greg's going to come, and we're going to have a time of commitment. And, and if you're a member here at Ninth and O, what I'd, what I'd like you to do at some point as we're singing together is, is just to stop and in the quietness of your heart, ask the Lord, what kind of church fruit am I bearing and what kind of seeds am I planting? Because ultimately what matters is not are you satisfied or am I satisfied, but is Jesus satisfied with your involvement in the lives of others? It may be that you're here today and, and you've already been praying and about joining us and you'd like to, to come forward this morning. We don't, we don't vote people in like, uh, like many Baptist churches. What we'll do is we'll talk with you privately We'll listen to your conversion story. We will uh, talk with you about the steps of, of church membership. So you could come down. We're going to have some staff guys here at the front, and they'll be glad to introduce you to someone that can, can walk you through that information. 
Or maybe you're at a place in your life, you don't know Jesus, and what you see your life is producing isn't very satisfying to you. And you'd like to talk with someone about your spiritual life. You may not even be ready to accept Christ, but you'd like to talk with someone about the claims of Christ. We'd love to talk with you this morning. We'd invite you to come forward. We would never manipulate you or coerce you or, or to pressure you to do something you're not ready to do. But you can, you can rest assured we'd love to talk with you. So I'm going to ask if you'll stand and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Greg's going to come. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of announcements and then we'll be finished this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the writing of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians and what it says to us about the gift of church membership and what it means to be a part of a church family. So we pray in these final moments that our hearts would be wide open to the work of your spirit and that you would have your way in us for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.